Welcome to another episode of your favorite podcast, Monuments, Museums, and Mojitos. It's me, Polly. <laughs> I'm Nikki. And I'm Izan. And today we are speaking about Robben Island. But before that, we would like to announce that we self-nominated ourselves for a <laughs> British podcast of the year. Um, so far, we have five votes, <laughs> I think. It's um, too uh, late to even ask you guys to vote for us because yeah. uh, closing... It- Voting closes tomorrow. So we are expecting an award, but probably we won't get it, I guess. You never know, you never know. Yeah. But keep tuned for next year, guys. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> next you know. year we'll inform you. Next year will be the hot shit. Yeah. Yeah. I think Nikki also has some feedback session for us. Yes, but do we want to talk about our cocktail first? So today we are drinking a lovely sangria um, because it's really hot outside and because we are talking about a South African site, we have chosen a South African wine to go in it. So we have a lovely Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, I just really like saying that word. I probably <laughs> I probably pronounce it horrifically, like sorry, all of France. But, uh, it's, a, it's also, it's a Cab Sav, my Australian yeah, people. Yeah, Cab yeah, Sav. Cab Sav, but Sauvignon is just <laughs> such a great word. It is. <laughs> Anyone know what it means? No. no. Maybe, is it a place, do you think? Or, Probably, actually. Or a type of grape, maybe. Could be. Could be. Um, oh, but you be. also don't know. Because usually also... when someone asks that question, <laughs> they usually know. <laughs> I, okay. No, okay. We'll, we'll find out. I okay. studied a bit of French at school, but okay. Sauvignon did not come into our vocab <laughs> okay. lessons. So, no, sorry, Well, guys. if somebody of you guys knows the story behind Sauvignon Blanc and the name, <laughs> please write please us. Please yeah. Excuse our ignorance. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, it's uh, very refreshing uh, as per the Athenian heat and summer. So at the end of every episode, we encourage you guys to get in touch with us, send us your thoughts, feedback, feelings, concerns, and we love it. This week, uh, we had a gal pal of ours reach out, Rachel, hey girl, uh, who had something to say about our Dior episode and some comments we made regarding J-Lo. Some oh. comments regarding what Polly said about J-Lo. <laughs> if I remember correctly, I think you said she was in decline when she was at the In Acropolis. 2008, yeah. Okay, well, look, just some feedback we've had is that J-Lo is actually timeless. She does not decline. She does not, uh, you know, age poorly. Uh, I've never said that. Also, she did the Super Bowl in 2020. If someone's in decline, I don't think they would be doing the Super <laughs> Bowl in 2020. She, to be fair to Polly, she made a comeback, but yeah. I think 2008 was before her comeback. Okay. I, I agree with that. She definitely made a comeback. The song with Pitbull, 2020, <laughs> but 2008, J-Lo, I mean... I'm just saying what the people said. Was that Ben Affleck era, J-Lo, or after the I breakup? I think after, I think after Ben Affleck. I think Affleck, maybe after yeah. the breakup. I mean, we have to agree, J-Lo, uh, P- during PDD's time, was the best J-Lo, probably, when they were dating, no? Yeah, um, yeah probably. probably. Our listener says she's timeless. Okay. I'm just relaying that information. Okay. Okay. I agree, J-Lo is timeless. We apologize. And she does look banging for her yeah. age. Like, she does, she yeah. does, she does. Yeah. She's so. like mom's age, she's 51. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. No, okay. we, we appreciate and love J-Lo. Yeah. <laughs> shout, out to, shout out to J-Lo. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Sorry for our comments Sorry, last Rachel. episode. Okay. <laughs> or whatever it was. Okay. 
Exile as a practice has been used by millennia by societies and ruling regimes against political dissonance and criminals. A practice utilized by ancient societies has never been found to be left completely in the past, where some may argue it belongs. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you for that intro. <laughs> Very dramatic. <laughs> and dark. <laughs> Just setting the scene. We do have quite a dramatic and dark um, topic, though, to be fair. So, uh, so yeah, Robben Island um, in Table Bay, just off the coast of Cape Town in South Africa. Do you guys know much about it? No, but I know South Africa also has a lot of great white sharks. And the way they say shark is like, shark here, shark here. (laughs) There's the sharks, the shark. I love it. I love it. There is a lot of marine biology there. Mm. Actually, a fun fact for you, uh, Robin Island, uh, or Robin Island, uh, sorry for my <laughs> horrific South African Afrikaans accent there. <laughs> Anyone else can do a better one? No. Can you repeat that? Robin Island. <laughs> <laughs> um, it translates as Seal Island oh. because it's populated with large seals in the oh. area, and there's also a beach populated with penguins. So that's probably oh, wow. why there's so many sharks because their favorite food is seals. favorite food. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So. Oh, there you go. Fun facts. Fun facts. Okay. And yeah, I went to South Africa two years ago just before i moved to greece um on i think my seventh trip because i have family there so i've been quite often but yeah we just went like to the shopping precinct that's on the waterfront and there are just seals like sunbathing oh my god really yeah just up on the side like sunbathing about wow yeah don't go too close because i think they bite but uh fair yeah but yeah they were just like big cats lazing in the sun it's great times Noise, so noise. Yeah. So you've frequented the area quite a bit. Yes. So I have uh, family. My aunt, uncle, cousins all live out there, uh, and my grandparents also retired mm. out there. So nice. how is it as a country? Like, I know that they had relatively good economic growth some years ago. Like some years dec- ago, they yeah, did. like a decade um, ago, the World Cup was there. I remember ten yeah. years ago. Oh, yeah. They were all, usually they were mentioned. 10 years ago, obviously, together with Russia and China, Brazil for developing countries, like as an example, but... Yeah, no, I, th- I think it's taken a bit of a, a decline, sadly, because yeah. um, they have like regular blackouts now, yeah. uh, power cuts. Huge crime rates, right? Huge crime rates, yeah, right. especially in certain parts of the country, like yeah. around Johannesburg. Um, it's not so bad in Cape Town, um, from, from my experience anyway, but uh, it's it's still very much like people are very aware of their safety locked yeah. cars when they drive anywhere security fences on all the houses yeah. like gated communities that kind wow. of thing yeah. um and it's still although it is now obviously in a 20 no 30 years post apartheid um it's still quite segregated in terms of wealth in the country really so yeah, there's still still a lot to work on, I think. But we'll kind of go back in time and tell you a bit about the story of what's 
led up to all of this and see where we're at today. Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Robben Island is known globally as the infamous political prison island where Nelson Mandela and over 3,000 other political prisoners were incarcerated during the apartheid era. It was used over the period of 1961 to 1991 and is one of the most famous examples of political internment islands in the world. Actually, Nikki and I wrote a paper for our um, master's degree on uh, political exile islands and internment islands so this is a topic particularly close to our hearts (laughs) as weird as that might sound it's quite a depressing topic but uh no we we love a good exile island and the island was designated museum status and then became a unesco world heritage site in 1999 so since then it's actually been an official UNESCO site and I'll come back to this later on but it's quite a rare example because there are very few dark heritage sites that are included on the UNESCO World Heritage lists for obvious reasons because Mm. UNESCO is celebrating the achievements of mankind and so obviously these uh, particular sites that are are you know have a darker history have a very negative past uh they're not really something that you would imagine we would celebrate but generally it's kind of overcoming adversity and overcoming Mm. these trials and tribulations of humankind that is being celebrated in these sites and as a unesco site it has an average of 300,000 visitors annually and it is now one of the key iconic attractions of both Cape Town and South Africa. I actually, while we were writing our paper, I reached out to uh, the marketing team for Robben Island and they did get back to me with a couple of insights. So oh, I'll slip them lovely. in if I can. Yeah, yeah. But that, that was their quote, that it was an iconic attraction. <laughs> <laughs> so the use of Robben Island didn't start in the 20th century we actually go right the way back to the 15th to 19th century for when it was first used um and the island was used as a stopping and resupply location for passing ships uh back when it was first colonized by the dutch and then the area was colonized again by the british (laughs) um yeah uh it was it was a big victim of colonization and actually my aunt did point out to me after our statues episode that we probably should have mentioned that uh, the Rhodes statue was one of the first to kind of create the conversation in the world so um, there was Cecil Rhodes he was a British kind of colonial who then became a governor of South Africa and Zimbabwe and what was Rhodesia named after him at the time and Mm. he was kind of instrumental in all of that and the South African University used to have a big statue of him but that was one of the first to be removed in the statues conversation that's been happening recently wow it's interesting yeah there's also one at Oxford University in the UK and students have been calling for that to also be removed but I think so far it's still in place interesting yeah but yeah he was I mean he did a lot politically 
but he was also a pretty bad dude. Like yeah. he was he was not the the nicest or kindest to the local population. He was a pretty massive racist, so yeah. as you can imagine. Yeah. yeah. So yes, the island has a long history of incarceration from the nineteenth century British colonialism onwards. And it was actually used as a leper colony before it was used as a prison island. So it was kind of always that rock off of Cape mm. Town that they thought we'll just put the undesirables over there. And so from the release of the prisoners in 1991, the final inmates were taken off the island in 96 and the island was declared a national monument in 96 and a national museum in 97. So it was pretty... That's quite a fast process. Yeah, it was a it? really quick turnaround, basically because the government changed so quickly at that time as well. Uh, so the previously white government was then after apartheid was replaced by the ANC um, who the African National Congress Party and that's why it was such a quick process of changing mm-hmm. everything over but I'll explain a little more about that <laughs> later as well <laughs> uh, so while people were while the prisoners were in, uh, kept on the island they were kept in prison cells that were eight foot by seven foot, which is only 2.44 by 2.13 meters. Wow, that's nothing. Yeah, that's what they were living in. So it's just them, a blanket, a bucket. That's pretty much it. And depending on the class of prisoner that you were, depended on like how many luxuries you got. So for example, Nelson Mandela, when he was first incarcerated there, he was in the set of prisoners which was like the lowest of the low he was only allowed a pair of shorts he didn't have a shirt he didn't have socks shoes pair of shorts his blanket and his bucket and that was it uh so the prisoners were subjected to manual labor in quarries that still stand today as they have for the last 80 years and if you go to the island you get a little tour of like seeing what the quarries were like they're limestone quarries so bright white glaring light off of these quarries so it was just manual labor with pickaxes and shovels and that was their day-to-day routine while they were kept on the island sleeping in their tiny cell and then out for manual labor yeah And today, if you go to the island, you actually are led by ex-political prisoners themselves. They lead the tour guides on the island. So that's a really insightful process because you actually... Yeah, that's amazing. That's great. Great initiative. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed that. Like, honestly, it brings you to tears, like, hearing their stories firsthand. They'll tell you, like, I was in that cell. I was there from this year to that year. Mm. That is so unique. Yeah. I had this experience and the impact... authenticity of robin island for visitors is like that's integral to it really Mm. um as you know the marketing department themselves said as much but also when you go visit like it's really it's the highlight it's like listening Mm. to people who really experienced it and and their their side of the story so i already said a little about experiences of prisoners so every day um the prisoners would be uh, subjected to ice cold showers and one of the ex-prisoners who was a kind of a colleague of nelson mandela ahmed kathrada he continued to take cold showers every day after his release as well just to remember the experience and he was in there for 26 years of his life on this island Mm -hmm. nelson mandela himself had been a heavyweight amateur boxer in his youth and it just yeah he completely changed his 
physique because you know the manual labor the awful rations of food he just became you know so hunched and and small i'm sure you you've seen you know yeah, yeah of he, him as a older man but i remember yeah. he was always very skinny you know yeah. yeah no but before that he'd been a heavyweight boxer like just imagine what yeah. that, what, what he went through for that change to happen and every year the prisoners were only allowed to receive or send two letters oh my god yeah two letters per year so yeah. they couldn't communicate with their families their families could barely come visit and yeah it was it was very insular but for the upside for the for the prisoners was that they they learned a lot from each other there was kind of this mentality of it being a university or every single man mm-hmm. being a book and they would learn from each other they would even make appointments to see each other because <laughs> even though they didn't have you know, they had nothing else but time, yeah. but each man's time was precious. So they would make an appointment to go and see each other and, to, you know, have a conversation, learn something from each other. And so the political movement didn't die once they were in prison. They kept their beliefs and their ideals because they continued to grow and learn. That's very interesting. So it seems that it was not very well taught from the government then to put all these intellectuals together in one yeah, yeah. Uh, prison yeah. I mean, yeah yeah they were just kind of shoved over there to be forgotten about but they continued to hold their ideals yeah. that actually happened quite frequently with exile especially in the 20th century when you know people were being exiled under the fascist regimes because they were too leftist like suddenly the fascists are putting all the leftists in one place which is usually an island where they have you know all the time in the world and what do they do they're intellectuals they're smart they they breathe yeah. the, their ideas and their movements with each other. And with the locals, like, yes. they'd start yeah. schools and... Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. You know, like, exile, yeah, kind of allowed these movements to flourish rather than suppress them, be, if yeah. you think about it, in some cases. Mm. It's yeah. interesting because I'm looking from the, from the perspective of Bulgaria. We also had several... We had one particularly small exile island, which was... Uh, there was a labor camp during communist times but we didn't have this impact because people i guess they had really difficult life there and it was a labor camp and Mm. it's just you go there and basically your life finishes for yeah well and also maybe that was to do with it being a communist country yeah because it did seem like but from our research the communist countries were much more labor camp yeah yes um hardcore it's not the typical political it's not just we're putting you here Hmm. do what you want exactly it's you're forced to yeah extremities yeah yeah um yeah some of the other islands that we looked into um or the countries who used exile uh such as italy and greece they had a much more lenient way of treating their political dissidents like they didn't want them in to be able to distribute their views to the public so they you know isolated them but once they were isolated they just kind of left them to their own devices yeah and although they might be living in kind of harsh conditions where they lived in tents and they didn't have you know infrastructure to take care of them they also weren't yeah it wasn't that they were sent there to die necessarily. Yeah. 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 There were more extreme cases, such as Macronosos and Nystrasis, where they were much more extreme islands, but mostly it was it was quite a it was just get them out of the mainland pretty much. Yeah. Get mm-hmm. them out of main society. We don't care yeah. what you do. 
yeah. where you are now. So let's tell you a little bit about Nelson Mandela. Uh, the inspiration for this podcast is actually because it is Nelson Mandela Day during July. So uh, it kind of made sense with the timing. So yeah, let's tell you a little bit about Nelson himself. So he was incarcerated on the island for 18 years. His full prison sentence was 27 years, but he he was moved after 18 to a different prison on the mainland. He was sentenced to life in 1964 for treason alongside seven other ANC members. So his story was pretty much that in 1948 the start of apartheid well apartheid started in south africa and um, which was formalized racial segregation every member of the general public was classified according to their color so you were either black white colored which was mixed race or indian uh, Indian was a later classification because there were quite a few uh, South Asians living in South Africa. But yes, so there hmm. were the four categories and only white people could vote. None of the other classifications could vote at all. So you can imagine who stayed in political power. <laughs> yeah, that's convenient. Yeah. So, and also every aspect of society was then according to what your classification was. So what hospitals you could go to, where you could be born, where you could be buried, where you could get married, like everything that you could do in life was dictated by your classification card. Yeah. So it was, as other countries were kind of facing civil rights movements, South Africa had really clamped down and... And yeah, kind of said like, this is where, this is our stance and this is where we're staying. (laughs) So the African National Congress Party, they started against this oppression. They actually started in 19, well, sorry, they'd been around for quite a while, but Nelson Mandela joined in 1942. So this was slightly before apartheid itself, but already there was massive oppression for, for black people. So he joined the party as it became more and more obvious that there wasn't progressive views that were going to allow people of different ethnicities to thrive. It was still very white dominated and obviously it only got worse from there. So when he joined the party, he believed in nonviolent protest against racism. There were lots of different viewpoints in the party, sort of like women's suffrage movement, where some people thought that the only way to be heard was to be violent, to really make a, a fuss and a shout and uh you know happened the same in in u.s between malcolm x and martin luther king you know yeah where, yeah exactly yeah very yeah. similar where sort martin luther king was more for a peaceful movement and malcolm x was more for for a more, more radical yes um so yeah it was very 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 similar and so he started off as being very non-violent but then after the sharpville demonstrations in 1960 uh, in which it was a peaceful protest but members of the public were then fired upon by the police there were 69 deaths of unarmed civilians including many women and children and that was just a peaceful protest like basically against the oppression that they were facing and so from that point onwards Mandela decided that there was no way that they were going to be heard by just saying their viewpoint they had to take deliberate action and 
Yeah, people have been jailed on and off for years before this. So in 1952, 8,500 people were jailed for defying segregation laws in public spaces. And that was, these movements were kind of uh, started and and really pushed by Nelson Mandela and, and his compatriots. They all, uh, in the ANC, they were kind of telling people like, don't do what they're telling us to do. You know, you want to go to this place, you want to sit in that seat. You do those things, you make a stand. And they were saying this to both white and black and, you know, anyone who wanted to join in the movement, they could do it. So it wasn't solely racially segregated. If there were white people who who joined their cause, then they were, Mm. you know, more than welcome to join as well. So what they decided to do was sabotage government properties and institutions. They tried to do this at night, so as not to injure any civilians or, you know, an, anyone who might like work in these places. But they would go in and, you know, set off bombs in, in lots of different kind of institutions or like uh, power plants, places like that that were kind of integral to the infrastructure of South Africa. And so they did this for several years. Uh, well, for, for a good three years they did this. But in 1963, Nelson Mandela was convicted for smaller charges against him uh, of leaving the country without permission to do so because he went into political hiding. And then he was arrested because there was a raid on a safe house and they found all this evidence of all of the political espionage that they've been doing and the, the bombs and things. And so he actually faced the death penalty at that point. He was oh. found guilty of Jesus. treason, given life in prison and sent to Robben Island. It was catastrophic on his personal life because his daughter, Zinzi, was 18 months when he was incarcerated oh, no. and she didn't see him again until she was 13. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, yeah, he wasn't allowed. He could have his wife come and visit, but only behind, you know, a screen where they yeah. had guards. All of the letters that they sent, even the two per year, they were heavily censored. Mm. So, yeah, there was no real way of communicating. But he started working on his uh, autobiography, A Long Walk to Freedom, while he was still incarcerated. And his fellow ANC members would smuggle out passages when they were released from prison or transferred to other facilities. So he and, and the political like movement outside of South Africa started growing and growing. There were economic sanctions from several countries because apartheid was just... It was not acceptable and the rest of the world was coming to see this. So in 1982, he was transferred to another prison in Cape Town and isolated in total solitary confinement. He was offered conditional release a few years later, but he refused until they were at the point where there were no conditions for his release. Mm. They acknowledged that they were in the wrong and and yeah, eventually... That, that happened. So apartheid was abolished in the early 1990s. And finally, there were free elections held where all the other races could actually vote for the first time. <laughs> and Nelson Mandela was voted president of South Africa. Oh, my yeah. goodness. I mean, what a story, right? What a story. I, I think we can put, in my opinion, probably Mandela in, let's say, in the same sentence with Martin Luther King, I believe, Malcolm X about influential people for... The black community in general 
his his words at the trial i think are particularly poignant and um, because he said during my lifetime i have dedicated my life to the struggle of the african people i have fought against white domination i have fought against black domination i have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons will live together in harmony and equal opportunities it is an ideal for which i hope to live for and to see realized but if need be it is an ideal for which i am prepared to die so he wasn't he the, the beautiful thing about Nelson Mandela's politics was that it, it wasn't about retribution and it wasn't about revenge he wanted the chance for everyone to have the same rights yeah and that's what the ANC was you know that that's how the political party came into power but yes sadly over time the political party i think has has moved slightly there were some corruption issues i yeah. know yeah definitely so yeah it was but this always happens to i think political parties and political leaders when they stay too long in power they become really corrupted yeah no one's gonna vote them out at least you know not yeah. within a living generation yeah. i don't think of the end of apartheid yeah it would be unlikely for them to lose power yeah. so i believe when you stay more than 10 years in power you definitely get corrupted and there are some people who say that 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 Robin Island itself is kind of a political tool for the ANC so and like the rainbow nation through a collective struggle like the whole narrative that Robin Island is perpetuating is a very politicized pro ANC mm. kind of state but i think that's always going to happen when a political party has such a strong narrative yeah. that any heritage that backs that narrative mm. is always going to be politicized. Well, it's it? also a very political heritage. Like, yeah. It's obviously going to be politicized. Yeah. But so what was the story with UNESCO that you mentioned? Yeah, so there are very few UNESCO sites um, which are actually dark heritage sites. So one of them is Hiroshima Peace Memorial Park um, and another is Auschwitz um obviously uh and those are pretty much exclusively the only kind of dark heritage sites that are on the unesco world heritage list they are discussed as traumatic sites and that there was a lot of discussion that traumatic sites should not be included on the list as they do not contribute to the outstanding achievement of mankind um in in no positive way at least um but then there was a lot of discussion and eventually these three were approved um to be kind of a triumph over oppression so in each one they they kind of had a, a unique story that was specifically to do with overcoming adversity overcoming oppression and how mankind has learned from the mistakes of these places but yeah it's it's a tricky one isn't it because I mean we know from our research that dark heritage is really important to be kind of acknowledged. Yeah. Yeah. I think the heritage sector is slowly moving into that direction. Yeah. And tourism yeah. starting and to love it. Reason to such prob- sites are increasing each year to places of traumatic heritage. Yeah. It's on on TV and in media more yeah. as well. Yeah. 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 And I think as a in general as a society we're be- we're becoming more familiar with being uncomfortable uncomfortable about our history and the history of the world it's almost like yeah. you know with all these social issues that are uh, presented to us whether it's with race gender violence we're starting to acknowledge that we need to be learning about this stuff and mm-hmm. we need to be we need to see it being represented in media in culture and not just having a 
shiny objects behind a wall in a museum and yeah not really much else or asking any questions about it mm-hmm. yeah i think we also have this contemporary process of heritageization in a way that our approach to heritage management is a bit more holistic mm. what you were talking about nikki that um different types of intangible heritage that basically that everything nowadays is heritage and can be perceived as heritage yeah. and i'm sure that in the next 10 years this would unlock uh, the possibilities that will include more unorthodox sites yeah, to be part of UNESCO's heritage list. Um, I think we are becoming more comfortable with both trauma and with ambiguity. Uh, as we've kind of discussed previously, something that we seem, mankind seems very uncomfortable with is 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 something good or bad, right or wrong. Like we like pigeonholing, but I think we're, we're kind of getting to the point where we know that there are nuances that we really yeah. have to look into. And from our research we've done on exile uh, islands and their history, it's actually interesting because we came across uh some work that had been focused on the effects of trauma from these historical incidents and you know the idea of collective trauma the trauma that is imposed on a society or on a particular culture or on a particular group of people and just as trauma that is faced by an individual when we don't acknowledge this trauma when it is swept under the rug when it is ignored there are negative implications for the society so actually acknowledging this trauma acknowledging difficult parts of history and presenting them to society and explaining you know this is what happened this was wrong but we're not shying away from sharing it actually has healing properties on a society as a whole and the individuals who experienced it yeah i think that's really important. yeah I think that's also kind of related to the idea of collective memory, that yeah. there is society has collective memory, and in fact, each citizen of a particular city or country has a different memory about the history or about his experiences. And in the end, we need to present a picture where each memory has place in that picture and is acknowledged and people live in peace with it i think that's the way forward and i think we were starting to say it happened again uh happened already because i remember again from our 2019 trip to hungary in a museum called terra Haza, which is terra house which is basically has dark history completely on display uh, display in regards to the communist and fascist periods of Hungary and you know that was all about the traumas inflicted on society but then on the last floor it actually had the people that perpetrated it mm. so you weren't only faced with the you know shockingness the bad in terms of what was received but you actually had the people that were inflicting it on it as well it had both testimony from the victims and then like images of the perpetrators didn't it yeah and like some also yeah. some audio from perpetrators kind of saying it was actually holistic yeah. as fuck in yeah. terms that's of great. a heritage yeah. museum and that's literally the for me personally that museum is the only one i've walked out from in the world and been like wow like yeah. wow i've seen something so horrific so so ugly so traumatic but I have just learned so much. Yeah. So, so much. And that was also heavily politicized and kind of, yeah, there was a lot of uh, kind of propaganda in there, but it was still very impactful. And I think as long as you're aware of the politicization of these kinds of dark heritage, well, all heritage sites, but especially dark heritage ones, because they're telling a narrative from a perspective and generally Mm. as with all history from the perspective of the winners. Yeah. Um, 
yeah it was it was still so impactful i mean both nikki and i ended up writing papers on this one yeah one museum yeah. highly recommend was, if you're ever in hungary yeah. and you know what i feel also that in our contemporary society i feel that we are approaching a stage where we are repeating some problematic issues which occurred 100 years ago during the 20s with the yeah. rise of fascism yeah. and it's happening again yeah. there is huge propaganda there is a lot of racism and homophobia occurring in our world currently and people are we are so polarized in our mm. opinions yeah yeah and that's why we have to be so really good. careful how we present history uh, how we speak about society and and problems because we live we live in a really difficult times especially That's taking true. into consideration also the effect of social media and how we live in our small balloons and people get really um our aggressive regarding their views like we're not kind of presented with a holistic view enough of the time we do very much get our own opinions projected back to us on social media mm-hmm. um like we've we've had discussions about this before yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah it's it, and it kind of creates this dangerous little bubble of you thinking that everyone should have the same opinion as you and as far as you know everyone does have the same opinion yeah. as you yeah. and then when you realize that things are happening in wider politics or you know outside that are completely opposed to the standpoint that you have it just it comes as a complete shock to the system and we need we need to be presented with the whole picture we yeah. do Yeah. And you know, enough is enough. We need to start seeing this being represented in culture and heritage because as you said, Polly, history appears like it's somewhat repeating itself and what is history here for? It is for us to learn and mm-hmm. hopefully, you know, not repeat certain things again. So let's learn from Nelson Mandela, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks guys for listening to us once again. I uh, hope you enjoyed this episode and the sangria that you've hopefully made and are drinking alongside uh as always please 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 feel free to reach out to us we are on facebook with the podcast's full name and on twitter and instagram at museums mojitos we hope to hear from you and looking forward to seeing you next time bye bye, bye guys bye.